Relationship Roadmap, spoken by Kevin and Linda Swanson. Good morning, Metro. Hi, people in the nursery. We're glad you're there. We're glad you made the incredible effort to get your kids to church and to come out and be here, too. So welcome to everybody. Yesterday, Kevin and I had a wonderful Saturday with about 21 couples from Metro, and we dug into marriage relationship issues. And this morning, we're going to talk about relationship issues as they apply to marriage, but to everybody else, too. So if you do not fit into the marriage category, this message is still for you. There's things that we can all apply to our relationships. And thankfully, Paul has a lot to teach us as we dig into this passage today. I want to share a little bit about Kevin and me and how we met. It was a long time ago. It was 1972 in San Francisco. It's fall. It was beautiful. And we became best friends really quickly. We met the very first day of our freshman year in college. And a few months later, it was my birthday, and Kevin invited me out for supper. And I was happy to go out for supper. I was a little surprised because we had no money. Any money we earned, we were both working and going to school, went for our school bills. And so I was really surprised, but he took me down to Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, um, to Ghirardelli Square, to this little restaurant called the Bratskeller. It was a German restaurant, and it was, you know, very... 70s. It was dark, and there was this amber candle in between the two of us, and we ordered a very thick, hearty, delicious German soup with really crusty bread. And I remember sometime during the evening, you know, bringing the spoon up to my lips and bringing my eyes up to his, and all of a sudden going, oh my goodness, I could fall in love with this guy and ruined the best thing that I've ever had. He was the best friend I'd ever had, and I had hurt other people, and other people had hurt me, and I didn't want to ruin this amazing relationship that was so special. Short parentheses, we fought it for two more months, and then we started dating. <laughs> but all of us have been in relationships where it's it's fearful, it's scary. We know our potential to hurt others, and we know our potential to being hurt, and we can be afraid that we're going to fall into dysfunction. Love is a simple four-letter word that is complex in its meaning and its repercussions. We give love, we feel love, Love consumes us. It's an incredibly strong emotion. It is often overwhelming. We fall in love, and sometimes we fall out of love. I love you is an action. It means so many things. It means I have passion for you. I like you. I actively look for ways to love you. Couples make love. Homes are filled with love. We express love with loving care and concern. Love is affectionate. It's passionate. It's sexual. But it can also become passive and neglectful. Sometimes we are filled with love like being drenched in rain. We are just out walking and all of a sudden it just overcomes us and we're just drenched with love. And other times, not so much. We have to choose to love. We have to choose to obey God's command to love Him, to love our neighbors, and to love each other. Thank you, Linda. This love that uh, Linda has introduced to us here is actually the defining 
attribute of the people of God, that we as followers of Jesus Christ should be known by our love. And I wanna just take a moment here just to look at a couple places in scripture to kind of flesh this out because we see in the Bible that there are two different objects of our love, generally speaking. One is God, we're to love God, and then the other is to love people. The love for God part comes out, we see in Matthew chapter 22, when a man comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment of them all? And in verse 37, Jesus says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And so from that, we see that, that loving God with everything in us is where we start. We can't miss that step. These, this, is, this is basic foundational stuff for us as followers of Christ, loving God with everything in us. But then as we keep searching in scripture, we find that the love also has a horizontal aspect. We are supposed to love people. And again, we can divide that into two different categories. The first category of people is called neighbor. Neighbor, and Jesus goes on in the Matthew chapter 22 exchange to say this, and the second, the second commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus puts it right out there. When Luke in his gospel is recording the same thing, this is where Jesus tells the parable, the story of the Good Samaritan that most of us are familiar with. And Jesus is defining neighbor. And if you read the parable and pay attention to what Jesus says there, you'll find that neighbor is anybody who needs a neighbor. Doesn't matter if you know them, doesn't matter if you even see them. We, we can be good neighbors or bad neighbors to people on the other side of the globe just by decisions that we make where we live here in the United States. A neighbor can be a stranger along the way, as it was in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I call this an external love. This is a love that is projected outward towards people that are in need of a neighbor. But then there's another category that Jesus brings up in John chapter 13. It's actually when he and his disciples gathered around the table for the Last Supper, which we're gonna celebrate at the end of the service today. And, and he was talking with them there and he knew that he was close to the end. And he said to them in John 13, verse 34, he said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now it's very tempting for us to just say, oh, Jesus is restating love your neighbor, right? Love your neighbor, love everybody, everybody's my neighbor, I have to love everybody. Love one another, it's all the same thing, right? No, it's not right. We have to stop here and pause and say, what is Jesus talking about? Because he says, I give you a new command. Ah, this is something different. This is not just repeating love your neighbor. We have to ask ourselves the question, who was in the room with Jesus when he said that? Well, it was his 11 followers. One had already left, kind of disqualified himself. And Jesus is in this room with the 11, and he says to them, you guys, you need to love one another. They weren't terribly good at that, if you pay attention to the Gospels. They weren't terribly good. But Jesus said, if you guys can't get this right, Nobody's gonna believe you're my followers, but if you do get it right, when you do get this love between yourselves right, people on the outside are gonna say, huh, 
Those people are followers of Jesus. And so this new command, this relational love within the body of Christ, within the church, is what Jesus was talking about and it's what we're gonna talk about this morning. We are to love one another Turn your head to the left and the right. Just do, just do that. Just look. Look. Who, who's, who's seated next to you? Who's, who's beside you? Who's, who's around you? Okay. This is the love one another that Jesus is talking about here. Whether it's in our marriages, in our relationships with other followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus put it in the form of a command. It's not optional. We have to get this right, church or else we're going to be pretty bad ambassadors for Jesus Christ. So what does this look like? Well, this is what we're gonna talk about this morning. We're gonna look at a passage in the book of Colossians where the Apostle Paul actually puts some flesh on these bones of love one another. Paul writes this letter to a certain church, to people who were one another's, they were Christians, they were followers of Jesus, and he says to them, this is what this love should look like among you guys. So I'm going to read for us. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Six verses. That's where we're going today. And it'll be on the screen, and you can follow it along on your app or your Bible if you've got that there. Colossians 3, chapter 12. This is the New International Version. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Church, this is the word of God for us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, the vision that you paint in these verses for us in our relationships, whether it's our marriage or our friendships, our extended family, our coworkers, our neighbors, is beautiful. And it's a vision that we cannot live into on our own. And so we thank you for this scripture, and we thank you for the truth of it, and we ask that you would please teach us, open our hearts and minds to hear from you, and may you speak to us and transform us today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage, Paul is describing healthy relationship dynamics. And he's painting a picture for us that we would all say, I want that. I try to live into that. That's my aim to live this way with the important people in my life. But we would also say, but you know, we kind of like it to go with the flow. We kind of like to live what we feel. And if we're feeling loving, then we want to be loving. But if we're not feeling it, not so much. 
And so going with the flow is not always a good idea because you see going with the flow is the direction down. Going with the flow is down. And then when we go down, we can end up down the drain. And we don't want to end up down the drain with our relationships. But as the people in the nursery could tell us, there's all kinds of distractions in our lives today. We're very busy people, and so it's hard to invest in our relationships. And we can just kind of let things go. And if we're not careful, our relationships are going to go with the flow down the drain and possibly be flushed away forever. God does not invite us into this drifting, going with the flow kind of love relationship. That's not what he modeled for us when he was so intentional about loving us, so purposeful, so sacrificial. And he invites us to follow his example. Love starts with God. It is from this place of being loved by God and knowing who we are, God's chosen, holy, dearly loved people who have been made holy because of Christ's sacrifice and righteousness, who are dearly, deeply loved, that we are able to live the life that God has for us. In these verses, Paul describes the kind of relationship that God wants us to live, and it's from this identity of holy, chosen, dearly beloved, that we're able to live these verses. Without knowing who we really are and who God is, these verses are impossible for us. If we do not know that we are God's chosen people, then we're often trying to prove that we're worthy of being chosen. If you are like me, you may not have always been chosen. I was this tall in fifth grade, which you can imagine how awkward that was, right? I was not very athletic, and so when they would pick teams, I was always one of the last. But God's not like that. He chose me first. You thought he chose you first, but he chose me first. <laughs> now he chose all of us first because he first loved us. That's who we really are. If we don't know that we have been chosen, if we don't know that we've been made holy, then we're trying to prove that we are choose-worthy and that we're good enough. And our securities and our fears are going to drive our relationships, and that's going to result in unhealthy relationship dynamics. So it's really important that we know these three things. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God declared that we are his chosen. You and me, this is who we really are. We are his chosen. That is really good news. And because Jesus died for our sins and covered us with his righteousness, we are good enough. We are declared holy. There is nothing that we need to do to prove that we are good enough because Jesus proved it. And Jesus proved his love for us when he died for us. And we are declared his precious, beloved people. We don't have to prove that we're lovable. We are loved. And when we know who God is and we know who we are, that we are chosen, holy, and dearly beloved, that we are, then we're able to live into these verses the way that God is inviting us to live. But there are some prerequisites. Before we can live these attributes, we need to know who we really are. God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved people. And it's from that identity that we can live these verses. But there's two more things that we need to do. We cannot live these verses that we're going to look at unless we are willing to die to self because we cannot live these verses from a selfish perspective. We have to be willing to die to self, to live for our God, 
to live for our spouse, for our family, for our friends, for our coworkers. That's who we need to be willing to live for. These attributes also require that we pick up our cross. Jesus picked up his cross and came to earth to die for us. And he's asking us to follow his example and pick up our crosses and live purposefully, intentionally, actively loving one another sacrificially. That's how we love in our relationships. So it's from this place of knowing who we are as God's chosen, holy, and dearly beloved people that we're able to live these verses. Can you say the word identity? Now can you say the word identity like you mean it? Identity. Linda has just pointed out how Paul starts this verse by making sure that we know who we are. And once we know that, we can then move ahead into what Paul wants to present to us in these passages, in this, the verses that we're going to look at today. Paul uses a metaphor now at this point, and Paul does this often. You see this in many of the letters that he writes to the churches. He gives a word picture to the people because he wants us to imagine something. In some of Paul's writings, he talks about soldiers and farmers and athletes, and he's doing that so that we will relate to what he's talking about. And here, the, the, the analogy or the metaphor that he's using is of a person going into their clothes closet, opening the door and looking to see what's there. And he uses the language of putting on articles of clothing as he moves forward here. And there's five different articles of clothing that he wants to offer to us. And he tells us that we should clothe ourselves with these things. He has to tell us because it doesn't come naturally to us. Okay, what comes naturally to me when I stand in front of my closet is grabbing the closest pair of blue jeans and depending on the temperature, a short sleeve or a long sleeve t-shirt, done, I'm out the door, okay? Today, I had to be more intentional. I needed to dress for the occasion. I needed to do something a little different than what I would normally wear during the week. And Paul is offering us to be more intentional about what we put on. The first article of clothing that Paul offers to us is, is the garment of compassion. He says, clothe yourselves with compassion. And when he says that, what he's saying to us is, look at the world through somebody else's eyes. That this person that you're in a relationship with, this person you're sitting across the table with, this person who you call your friend, look at things through their perspective. What are they going through right now? What, what, are they, what fears and hurts are they experiencing rather than what can I get out of this relationship? Compassion looks through the eyes of the other. When Linda and I had been married for a few years, uh, we were living in a small apartment. Uh, we had two under two. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, you know how busy it is in the house if you've got two under two. And Linda was home all day working more than full time with these two little ones. I was off working full time outside the house. And I would come home tired at the end of every day. And I always look forward to coming home, taking my shoes off, sitting on the couch, putting my feet up, turning the TV on, reading the newspaper, whatever. And I realized after a short amount of time that my house was not a real peaceful place. 
My small apartment was not a good place just to chill when I came home from work. The kids were demanding this and that, and there were diapers to change, and there was a meal to fix, and maybe there was laundry to be to put away, and I was like, I was getting agitated because it wasn't a real peaceful place. And finally, I woke up to the fact that, that Linda had been experiencing this all day long in this small apartment, and I'd at least been out with other adults to talk to, and I thought, I need to change the way that I come home every day. I need to look at this through her eyes, not through what I can get out of it. So I started doing some self-talk on the way home. It's like, you know, when I get home, it's probably gonna be like this. It's probably gonna be a bit chaotic. It's probably gonna be things that are left undone. And I have the opportunity to either demand my way and sit down on the couch or to roll up my sleeves and jump in and see how I can help. And so I started showing some compassion towards her and it changed the whole atmosphere in our home. Throughout the entire evening, things calmed down a lot quicker. I could do stuff with the kids so she could do something with the meal and it was much more peaceful just because I was willing to put on the garment of compassion didn't come naturally. I had to be intentional about it, but it made all the difference. Paul goes on to offer us an article of clothing called kindness. And I think that kindness is, is most often manifested in our culture today in how we speak to each other. Obviously, there's acts of kindness, but we, how do we speak to each other? The words we choose, the tone that we choose with our words can make all the difference between a conversation turning into some kind of a, a fight or an argument or having a peaceful adult interchange about something just by how we speak to each other. I believe there's way too much fighting among us today. And I'm not talking about those people out there. I'm talking about us people in here. There's too much fighting. I hear it too often. And so often we give ourselves a pass on kindness when we allow our emotions to take over, or as Pastor Peter likes to say, you're giving your emotions way too much authority. I hear people say things like, well, I knew I shouldn't have said that, but I just couldn't help what I said. It's like, really? I mean, who hijacked your tongue? Come on. You could help what you said. You wouldn't say that to your boss at work or you wouldn't have a job anymore, but you're okay saying it to your spouse or your close friend or your sibling or family member. Does, does your friend, does your parent, does your spouse hear kindness when they listen to you? Paul offers the garment of kindness to us. The third one that he puts before us is, is humility. Humility. Now, we all wake up every morning with this universal assumption that we're right, don't we? I mean, who wakes up in the morning and says, how can I go screw things up as badly as possible today? I'm gonna go out and be as wrong as possible. No, we don't do that. We think we're right. We think we say the right things, that we think the right things, that we respond the right way. Linda and I were having a discussion one time. <laughs> Some of you are married, ha <laughs> And it went back and forth and back and forth and finally she just stopped. And she said, Kevin, you just have to be right, don't you? And my immediate response was, no, I don't. And on the inside, it's, but I am right. <laughs> it's, it's a universal assumption. But humility says, we don't know as much as we think we do. And that's okay. 
If this article of clothing is a t-shirt that Paul offers us, the t-shirt of humility, on the front it says lifelong learner. You don't ever arrive, you don't ever quit, you don't ever have it all together. On the back it says rookie. And it's freeing. You don't have to be the expert. You don't have to be right. You don't have to have all the answers. And you can be okay with that. Now, humility has an evil twin called pride. I don't know if anybody else, but yeah, pride. And pride is nothing more than an identity issue. Linda mentioned it at the first part of this passage, that we, our identity is in Christ, that we are chosen, holy, and dearly loved. But pride has to prove itself. It's, it's not okay just because God says it. No, we gotta prove that we are good enough, that we can do this or whatever. Humility, on the other hand, has nothing to prove. It's like, nope, I don't know that, and it's okay. It's a lot easier to be humble when we know who we are. Paul offers the t-shirt of humility to us as people who know who we are in Christ. We don't have anything to prove. The next one that he offers us is gentleness. And when I think of gentleness, I think about looking at other people through a lens that says handle with care. Handle with care. This person that you are with, this person you're in a relationship with is is in process, just like you are in process. They have their own flaws and fears and weaknesses, but they're very similar to the ones that you have. And we like to be treated with gentleness. We should choose to put on gentleness as we interact with those that we are in a relationship with. The last one that Paul offers to us, the fifth one, is patience. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we will all admit that yeah, we, we still are in process. We have a ways to go. We haven't arrived yet. But sometimes we hold our, our, our partner to a higher standard. It's like, well, we get imp- I get impatient with her. Why, why, aren't you, why aren't you better than this yet? But I give myself a pass because I know that I'm still in process. God is doing his good work in each of our lives. And he is incredibly patient with us. And he asks us to let that patient spill out, patience spill out onto those around us. I believe actually that patience flows out of these first four that we just talked about. If you can kind of get this compassion, kindness thing figured out, if you can, if you can figure out what it means to be gentle, what's gonna happen is that patience is going to naturally flow out of that. I'm a typical male of the species, and when I see something that's wrong, I wanna fix it, and I wanna fix it now. If it's a relational issue or otherwise, let's get this fixed, we can do better than this. But sometimes I just have to learn to slow down and to listen and not to force a fix, but to be patient. When I can get that right, I'm a much better partner for Linda than when I force things. Paul adds patience to our wardrobe and he invites us to make it a daily choice when we get dressed. So patience shows up in the next invitation he gives us when he asks us to bear with one another. He says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. 
Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Listen to how the message puts this. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. This is choosing to be patient and content with each other instead of critical and impatient or irritated by one another. Do we smile at each other's foibles or do we roll our eyes and think, I can't believe he's doing that again? Our weaknesses are just that. They're weaknesses. And they can irritate us. Or if we let them believe it or not, our weaknesses can turn into things that endear us to one another. Oh, look at him. He's doing that again. (laughs) Seriously, we really can go there. That's what love does. When love grows, we do become endeared to one another, weaknesses and all. When Paul asks us to bear with each other, he is challenging us to like one another, to delight in each other, to enjoy one another. Bearing us with each other sets us free from not having to be perfect, but actually being able to be becoming people, be growing people, be learning and being transformed people. We don't have to match an ideal. We get to be ourselves in process. Now, I have to say that Kevin is a planner. He was a pilot, and so he's really good at planning the day. And we often like to go to New York City, and so we'll talk about where we're going to go, and he will plan the day. He'll get out the maps, he'll figure out the bus routes, the train routes, and where the best coffee shop is where I'm going to be able to get my hot chocolate because that's my addiction. And he has it all planned out. And I'm not a planner. I'm someone who likes change. And so the morning of the trip, I might say, well, instead of going to the Central Park area, what if we went over to Chelsea? And all of his work is like history, right? Just because I had an idea. I wasn't intending to ruin his work, but he could sigh and roll his eyes or get irritated, or he could do what he does, which is to kind of laugh and say, okay, let me go work on it. And that's what he does. Because the very next thing says that we're to forgive one another. (laughs) This verse says that we are to forgive each other and not just with C-grade forgiveness, but we're to forgive as Jesus forgave us, which is top grade forgiveness. And here's the deal with forgiveness. We all need it. We have all sinned. We all need to be forgiven. And it really helps us to be able to forgive others if we have first received the forgiveness that God wants to give us. If you're finding yourself struggling with forgiving, you need to ask yourself, have I accepted God's forgiveness? Because if I haven't, I don't have anything to give. Mm. So we need to live as forgiven people, knowing that we are dearly loved, chosen, and holy people who have been forgiven, so we have forgiveness to offer. And when we offer forgiveness, we are becoming conduits of God's forgiveness. First we admit, I need your forgiveness, and I receive that forgiveness, and I live as a forgiven person who is chosen, holy, and dearly loved, and then I am able to offer that forgiveness to others. It's from my true identity that I can forgive. 
in all of our relationships, we need to forgive one another. Forgiveness involves grace and mercy and acceptance. And in marriage, we need to remember that I did not marry a, a knight in shining armor. As handsome as he is, he's not perfect. And I'm not perfect either. I married a human being who is just as imperfect as I am. And forgiving each other is one of the greatest gifts we give to one another. Forgiving isn't saying poor behavior is okay, gonna give you a pass. No, it's not okay. We need to deal with it. We can't forget it, but we can forgive it. Forgiving sets us free to move on into a, a safe and healthy relationship. We're no longer in prison because one of us has hurt the other, but we've given each other freedom to move past the hurt into a healthy relationship. How are we to forgive? We're to forgive as Jesus forgives us. We're not Jesus. And so we struggle with forgiveness. But this is the goal. And so we can pray and ask God, please teach me to forgive. Help me to live as a forgiven person who is able to be a conduit of your forgiveness to the people around me. Nothing was unforgivable to God. Nothing should be unforgivable to us. Verse uh, 14, Paul kind of goes full circle here and he comes back around to love. And uh, he says, put on love, which binds them, the others, together in perfect unity. So he's back to this, this clothing thing, put on, put on love. I kind of see love as the, the final article of clothing. The rest are kind of base layers. And then as you go out the door, you put your jacket on or whatever that covers everything else. The foundational motivating, redemptive, sustaining element in a healthy relationship is love. But again, it's a choice. Paul offers it to us, and he recommends that we put it on. It's interesting that Paul couples love and unity together in this verse. Put, love, put on love which binds them together in perfect unity, because unity is the word that God uses to describe marriage. That's the goal in a marriage, that we would experience the unity that God has for us. Love and unity are joined at the hip. Now, if you're not experiencing unity in a relationship that you're in, I would ask you to check the love component. Is it there? Has it grown cold? Has it gotten dry? Love isn't just a word that is spoken, that's part of it, but love is actions that follow the word that is spoken. It's always expressed by both. And I think we can look back through what Paul has already shown us in this passage and say, what are our practices in these different areas? And if we find that we're falling short in many of those, then maybe we're not doing a good job of expressing our love to the person that we are in a relationship with. Now, in any relationship, either one can take the first step. Our tendency is to wait. Well, sure, I'll, I'll wait. I'll, I'll, I'll show love to her once I start feeling some love from her. But if she's thinking the exact same thing, then we're deadlocked. We're stuck. We're not going anywhere. No, we're supposed to start now expressing our love to those around us. Our love should be a reflection of this completely one-sided love 
that God has for us. Because like Linda said earlier, his love is never based on our performance. It's going to be there whether we deserve it or not. And we never do deserve it. That's the example we're given for this love that Paul invites us to put on in our relationships. The next invitation says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you are called to peace. We were created for peace. That's why we're so uncomfortable when we fight. And we fight way too much. We break the peace in our homes and in our relationships when we fight. Mm. And we were created for peace. Jesus came to give us his abundant life that's what we accept when we accept him as our savior. But some of us do not receive that abundant life and we're not living into those attributes because we're not living in things like peace. Peace to live well with one another even though we're different and we see things differently. To put on peace or to live into peace means that we remember that we are not enemies, that we're on the same team, that we want the same things, we have the same goals. We are not created to fight or to bicker. We can choose peace. What does choosing the peace of Christ look like to you? Well, for me, it means thinking about how Kevin's going to respond, thinking about how my words are going to impact him. A lot of people walk through life and they're not even thinking about how they impact others. We need to be aware of how we're impacting each other. Kevin and I have a way that we resolve conflict, and believe it or not, even though Kevin's a pastor, we do have conflict. And when we do, we'll take something, and it's anything at hand. It can be one of our phones, a book, a pillow, anything, and we'll grab it and we'll say, this is the conflict, the budget, what we're gonna do this weekend, whatever we're fighting about, we name it, and we put it out here. And it stays out there, and then we look at it, as people who are shoulder to shoulder on the same team who are gonna conquer that. That is not gonna conquer us, we're gonna win. And even though Kevin has a different history, experience, goals, ideas, perspective on that than mine, we're going to come up with a third culture way of thinking about it. Not his culture, not my culture, our culture. Because you see, if this gets up off the table, the floor, or wherever we put it and comes in between us, then when I try to see Kevin, I only see this. It's come between us. And the only way to win is for him to come over to my side. And I really don't want to be the winner because that makes him a loser, and I don't want to be married to a loser. <laughs> we are on the same team. You guys are on the same team. Don't let things come in between you. And be thankful and be thankful. Thankfulness in any relationship goes so far. When Kevin compliments me when I'm bringing up the laundry from our basement and says, hey, thanks, you know, it makes that laundry basket a little bit lighter. And when I look at him with Thanksgiving, hey, he's cutting up the carrots, or wow, I'd never cut up carrots that way. I better tell him how to cut up carrots. There's a completely different way of looking at it. Am I thankful or am I critical? Thankfulness transforms our relationships. All right, we're getting close here. Um, I just want to put in a little parenthesis. We acknowledge that this is a lot, okay? In six verses, Paul just packs a bunch of stuff in here. And if you're starting to feel a little bit overwhelmed right now, please, please don't do that. Because when we get overwhelmed, then it's like 
we can just walk away without even putting anything into practice. And we don't want that to happen today. We want God to get your attention in maybe one or two of these areas, not try to eat the whole elephant at one time, okay? There's a couple more to go here, but we're getting close to the end. Verse 16, Paul says this to us, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Now, I confess that for years, this verse has been a bit of a head scratcher to me. I look at it, it's like, what is he talking about when he says that? But, but what I believe Paul is saying is, is that in every Christian relationship, marriage or otherwise, by definition, the message of Christ, the gospel, should be at the center of that relationship. And it should be what's visible in that relationship. We are Christians, and there are aspects of our relationships that should be distinctly Christian and noticeably Christian. For Linda and me, letting the message of Christ dwell richly among us did not happen naturally. But over time, we have added practices to our relationship that, 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 that kind of fill in what Paul is talking about here. For example, uh, years ago, Linda and I decided we are going to pray together every day as a couple. Yeah, we pray for each other individually and you know whatever, but we're actually gonna come together and as a couple, we're going to pray every day if we're in the same place at the same time. This is a distinctly Christian practice that we've put into our relationship. This is allowing the message of Christ to dwell richly among us. Linda and I have tried to do Bible studies together or a couple devotionals and stuff like that. Fail, fail. So what we have done is we've given ourselves permission to check in with each other on what we're reading in God's word. And when she can ask me at any time, hey, Kevin, what have you been reading lately in the Bible? Or I can say to her, hey, Linda, I was reading this yesterday and it made me think of you. Can I share it with you? And so we are interacting about scripture, but we both approach the scriptures very differently and that's okay. But the message of Christ is dwelling among us when we have a conversation about the word of God. We encourage each other in applying God's truth to each other's lives. These have become normal rhythms of life for us. And I'm sure we're just barely scratching the surface, but at least we are including some things in our relationship that are distinctly Christian. And I believe that needs to be present in every relationship. We need to become better at having conversations that don't just stick to the easy, comfortable, safe subjects. It's so easy for us to talk about entertainment, technology, fashion, athletics, pop culture, all that stuff is easy to talk about and it's safe. But how about the message of Christ? That's not maybe so easy for us to talk about in our relationships, but it belongs there. And Paul normalizes those kind of conversation in a relationship that's permeated with Jesus. Jesus should not be a rare component in a Christian relationship. Rather, Jesus should be both central and visible in our relationships. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. This means that whatever I do or say in our relationship, I want to do it and say it all with Christ's help 
and as unto him. I can't live these verses on my own. This is humbling myself to say, I need Christ's help to be able to live these verses. This is doing all things as unto him, not unto myself, not for my protection, not for my way, but so that he can be honored and glorified in my relationship. This is doing things in a way that puts Kevin first rather than me. This is using all of the gifts that God has given us from our abundant life, the fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, prayer, His Word, living all these things into my relationship, taking advantage of all of them. This is saying that here in this place of life that is often very messy, I'm going to worship you. In this place of my relationship with Kevin, with my relationship with my mom on the West Coast, with my relationship with my kids in Singapore and Chicago, I am going to worship you. I'm going to do all things as unto you in your name. And there's one more thing that we have to pay attention to about this because doing everything in Jesus' name means that my words and my actions represent Jesus. And if we're living as people who are doing everything in his name, then that is an incredibly strong filter that we have put on ourselves. We will not do or say certain things if we realize that we are representing Jesus. It'd be like saying, hey, Jesus, I'm going to do this in your name and then cuss our husband out. Yeah, yikes, we're not going to do that. Or Jesus, I just want to roll my eyes at him in your name. I don't think we're going to do that if we're realizing that everything that we do, from cleaning the toilets to making meals to going off to work to caring for our children, everything that we do, we are doing as unto him in his name with his resources. That is what our focus of life is, not ourself, not what we feel like, not what we're wanting to do. Paul concludes this passage here by um, saying, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the second time that he has mentioned thanksgiving in this passage. I think there's a reason for that. I think he knows how important it is to any relationship. Thanksgiving in a relationship, thankfulness in a relationship uh, it is like gas in the tank. It, it's, it's like medicine on a wound. Uh, it's, it's one of the most health and life-giving aspects of a relationship. So we need to be people who are thankful to God, thankful for the relationships that he has put us in, thankful for the abundance of provision that he's made for us, rather than focusing on what we don't have or what we think we need or things like that. Practicing thanksgiving will help us recenter our focus on Christ and it positions us to live well in these most significant relationships that God has blessed us with. Now, Paul has served us a very rich feast in this passage, more than any one of us can digest. And if we walked away feeling overwhelmed here, I don't think that would be a win. I don't think that would serve any of us well. And so what I'd like to encourage you to do as we wrap up this message today is this. We're going to put a, a slide up on the screen that, that lists out the things that Paul has presented to us here today. And I want you to consider that list. But I want you to consider it in relation to somebody in your life. A spouse, a parent, a friend, a sibling, whatever. Look at the list and ask God, God, is there something on this list 
that I should be bringing into that relationship. Let God speak to you. The list is there. You don't have to close your eyes. We can be in a prayerful attitude, but I'm going to give you the next 60 seconds or so as Eric plays just to spend time with God. What is he inviting you to do today as a result of what the Apostle Paul has shown us? God, I just want to thank you this afternoon for your generosity with us. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark on how to do relationships well. Thank you, God, that you are the one who has designed relationships. Lord, I pray for all of my sisters and brothers here today in regards to any relationships that may be difficult, may be strained right now, that you would give them some hope today Give them some direction. Give them a next step. And God, for each relationship that is flourishing, that's vibrant, that's life-giving, we do indeed give you thanks, God, because we know it's because of you that we can experience those relationships. Thank you that you are a relational God. Thank you that you proved it to us by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to be among us. I pray, Lord, that we will follow well. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. I'm gonna invite you to take your, your uh, communication card out or go to your app, uh, if that's what you're using today, for next steps I'd like us to consider. The first one says, I'm receiving God's gift of salvation today. I've been speaking to you, Linda has been speaking to you today as followers of Jesus Christ. We know that everybody in this room may not call themselves that may not call yourself a Christian, um, but God has made this opportunity by giving us, giving all humanity an opportunity to enter a relationship with him through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. If you've never taken that step, I would encourage you to consider doing that today. If you check that box off, I would encourage you to speak to one of us or go out to the next table out there on the left. And uh, there's some information for you, some resources, somebody who'd like to talk to you and pray with you about that most significant decision. The second one, I will spend time this week reading Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Those six verses can take up your whole week. If you want to read it once a day, that would be amazing. And you will find that God reveals things to you that you maybe didn't even see before or hear in this message today, but that would be a very worthwhile endeavor for this week. The third one, I will share one takeaway from this passage with my friend or spouse this week. If God has revealed something to you and in your head right now, it's like, yes, thank you. That is where I need to go at this point in time in this particular relationship. Share that with somebody. Whenever we do that, it helps cement what God is speaking to us about. 
It's, it's how he designed us. It's part of that relational aspect. And then fourth, uh, to prepare us to get back into our Acts series next week, I will read Acts 4, 23 to 36 in preparation for next Sunday. Uh, you want to be, if you read it ahead, you get a whole lot more out of the time together.